the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 40 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area. If you're listening to this show on Friday, June 17th, you're listening to this show live. If you're listening to it on another date, you're listening to a show that's already been broadcast. And that can happen sometime. I wanted to welcome you all to the show today. I thought I would start off the show by giving you, uh, for those of you who are new to the show and don't know anything about who is this Bob Bergman guy who thinks he knows something about estate planning and he's on the radio, uh, let me give you a little bit of my background uh, here in the South San Francisco Bay Area. I moved here with my family after my father retired after a 28-year career in the United States Air Force, which actually started in the Army Air Corps, then the Army Air Force during World War II. Uh, That was in 1968. We moved here to the Santa Clara Valley. Initially, we lived in Sunnyvale. Later on, my parents moved to Los Gatos, where I lived for a short time before I went off to college. I spent a year at UC Berkeley, then transferred uh, back here to Cupertino to De Anza College, where I got my AA. Then I moved on to San Jose State University, go Spartans, where I got my bachelor's degree, then moved on over to Santa Clara Law School. Uh, When I went there, it was still the University of Santa Clara before they changed their name to Santa Clara University because people were were getting uh, the USC here in Santa Clara County confused with the USC that's better known down in Southern California. So they changed their name, but my diploma says University of Santa Clara because that's what it was called when I went to the law school there. I was admitted to the bar in 1980, and I've been practicing continuously as an attorney since that time, with the exception of a two-and-a-half-year period where I went and worked as a vice president and business development officer for Comerica Bank Institutional Trust Department in Palo Alto, where I was responsible for bringing in business to the Institutional Trust Department um, uh, on behalf of the bank. Uh, That was a number of years ago. Then I returned back to the practice of law and eventually uh, pursued my certification as a specialist in estate planning, trust, and probate law. I actually passed my certification examination twice. 
the first time, it was too soon back in the practice of law, and I didn't have sufficient, quote, experience doing various estate planning things because I'd been two and a half years away from the practice of law. So essentially, I had to start over. But then when I had enough, quote, experience to take the uh, the specialization exam once more, I took it the second time and passed it <clears throat> and became board certified a number of years ago. So all I do in my practice is estate planning. <clears throat> Excuse me. I focus primarily on what I call foundational estate planning, which is planning using living trusts, powers of attorney, advanced health care directives, sometimes supplemental needs trusts for special needs children and adults that a family is dealing with and caring for, occasionally an irrevocable life insurance trust, which is abbreviated as an ILIT, uh, a technique to actually take life insurance outside of your estate at death that can be asset protected for the people you want it to pass to. And then uh, I used to do a lot of trust planning for retirement plans with what I call the Retirement Plan Trust. I still do those, but it's very uncommon to do those as much now because of changes in the retirement plan laws that make those types of trusts not nearly as attractive as they once were. But still, they are available. If you wanted to have a retirement plan paid out over time, as as paid out over as much time as legally possible, but you don't want the beneficiary to have immediate access to the money, a retirement plan trust could actually be a way to go for that. And also, if you're worried about the beneficiary misusing the funds, maybe even misusing the funds for a lifetime, and you have a substantial IRA or 401k plan, then a retirement plan trust might still be worthwhile for you. I also do probate and trust administration, which means I assist families with administering the estates of people after they've died. Uh, Probate administration, if all there is, is a will or no will at all. Trust administration, if someone had a trust that owned their property and now it needs to be handled to set forth uh, the distribution of that property and whatever that entails. In reference to trusts, I also go to court for special types of court petitions designed to deal with issues that can arise with trusts after they were set up. The most common one is probably called the Hegstat petition, and that's where somebody died and they owned property in their name or payable to their estate that is uh, more than a certain value or if it's real estate pretty much almost any value. And we go to court uh, as long as we have written documentation of intent of the creator of the trust. We go to court in order to get that property turned over to someone's trust after their death without going through the whole probate process. Another type of court petition that I do fairly regularly is a trust modification petition. And that's where we go to court to ask to amend, modify, or even cancel uh, an otherwise irrevocable trust, um, typically after the creator of that trust died 
and either the trust was created or it's supposed to be created as a result of the planning in their trust. And sometimes we go to court to modify that requirement. Um, that could be very common with an older trust for a married couple set up back when the federal estate tax exclusion amount was quite low relative to property values. Uh, today, the exclusion is very high, and sometimes doing the type of trust planning we did 15, 20, 30 years ago doesn't make sense anymore for a family. But if all the family agrees, we can actually go to court and do modifications of that trust. I also do spousal property petitions, which are petitions by a surviving spouse to have the the property owned by a deceased spouse declared as community property so it will pass to the surviving spouse. Um, that can happen even if there's property in the deceased spouse's sole name. Uh, it still could be community property under the law, and a petition like that is less intrusive than a full-blown probate and uh, would actually uh, enable the surviving spouse to now receive the property without going through the whole probate process. The uh, first two of those petitions I handle in San Mateo, Contra Costa, and Santa Clara counties, and then I can handle the spousal property petition in all three of those counties as well. So that's a little summary of who I am, where I came from, what my education and training is, and the types of things that I do in my practice. When we come back after this first break, I will go into my usual format, which is questions and answers from around the state of California. So when we return, stay tuned for the second part of Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, estate planning attorney, Bob Bergman. And I'll talk with you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back to the second half of the show today. I'm going to now uh, enter into questions and comments from around the state of California. I'm going to start first with one out of Los Angeles uh, that came in this week. And the person, uh, here's the situation. After the death of my father, I'm dividing the assets of the AB Family Trust into the Survivor's Trust and Exemption Trust. Now, let me explain. This is a type of trust that basically says uh, for a married couple, when the first spouse dies, their half of property goes into an exemption trust that is an irrevocable trust set up to benefit the surviving spouse. That's what it's set up for. Um, now, the person says, I'm keeping the appreciable assets, real estate and equities, in the survivor's trust where they will get the step up in cost basis upon my mother passing. That's another feature. Uh, cost basis is basically the income tax value of property. And a step up in cost basis means that the income tax value of property gets increased to fair market value when the owner of that property dies. Uh, and that's what this person is talking about. It said the exemption trust will be funded with cash, certificates of deposit, 
and all non-appreciating assets. That means assets that are not going to go up in value over time. Uh, appreciating, appreciating assets would include things like real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, precious metals, works of art, stuff like that, called capital assets. The total value of both trusts will be well below the estate tax exemption amount, even with any appreciation that takes place, so I'm not worried about that. What the person's saying there is they're not concerned about the value of the survivor's trust, which will be part of the mother's taxable estate when she dies, about that exceeding the exemption amount at that time, which could trigger a federal estate tax on some of the property in the survivor's trust. Now, here's the question. Do I need to have real estate professionally appraised if it's going into the survivor's trust? It will be professionally appraised when my mother passes, the estate tax filed, and the trust dissolved. Can I use comparables from Zillow to value the real estate now when I'm making up the asset schedules for the survivor's trust and the exemption trust? My answer to this would be, you absolutely should have it professionally appraised. Because if it's not professionally appraised, how do you know what the value of the assets is or are that is going into the survivor's trust so that equivalent value goes into the exemption trust? If it's a typical AB trust, that's what would have to happen. If you just guess that uh, it's... uh, it's actually worth less than what it actually is, then that means you are going to underfund the survivor's trust and you're going to overfund the exemption trust. In other words, you're going to put in more in there than was supposed to go in there by the terms of the trust and the law. And that can be a problem later on if that's discovered, if the IRS doesn't audit of the estate or an audit of of the trusts at the end when the mother dies. So I would say always get the property professionally appraised. Um, now, if 100% of the property was going into the survivor's trust, meaning there was no exemption trust, you really wouldn't necessarily need to get the property professionally appraised unless you were planning on selling it um, later on. Uh, If you're not planning on selling it later on, then you don't really need to get it professionally appraised. If 100% of the property of this couple is going into a survivor's trust. But because you're splitting and determining the value of what goes in the exemption trust based on the value of, of these appreciating assets going into the survivor's trust, the values need to match up, and there may even need to be some additional amounts going into the exemption trust if there's still cash left over and other assets after you have trued up the values of the appreciable assets and then non-appreciable assets. So it's a very compli- fairly complicated answer, but the short answer is if there's an exemption trust that's going to be funded with non-appreciating assets, you better have the appreciating assets professionally appraised to make sure that you're funding the exemption trust with the proper amount. That would be my concern uh, if it was not, uh, if they did not do that, that they would be 
uh, not properly funding it, and that could come back later on and bite the family if the IRS ever got involved in uh, in doing an audit and found that to be the case. Now, here's another one out of Los Angeles. It says, a family friend has willed us her estate, which includes her home worth around eight hundred fifty dollars to $900,000. She's still alive, and when the process of updating beneficiary details on bank accounts, etc., to ensure that they are exempt from probate. Uh, that's assuming that the the beneficiaries on those accounts actually survive this person, then it will not go through probate. Otherwise, it could still go through probate. We prepared a transfer on death deed for the home to do the same, which we have yet to record. She purchased the home. It wasn't inherited, and there's no mortgage. That suggests that probably the property taxes are pretty low. She wants this to be as inexpensive as possible, and I'll say as a sideline, inexpensive doesn't necessarily translate to the best idea. Uh, cheap often ends up with a bad result. She suggested adding us to the title while she's still alive to make it a gift. If a quick claim is prepared that adds us to the title alongside her, so she's still a named owner on the title, will this trigger a, a reevaluation of the property tax while she's still alive? Absolutely it will. Because you started by saying this is a family friend, not a parent with you, a child who's, who's living in the house or going to immediately move into the house. That will trigger a reassessment of the interest quit claimed out from the family friend to these people. So I would likely recommend to them, put it in a trust, have the accounts go into a trust, then you don't have to worry about probate at all, and you're also going to make sure that if those people she wants it to go to don't survive her for some reason, that we don't end up with everything going through probate when the family friend dies. And that could easily happen. We can't predict accidents or illnesses, or any other reasons why someone might pass away. So that is what I would suggest to this person. It's not the cheapest way to go, but it's the one that will assure the result that the person is looking for. So we're coming up on the mid-show break now. When we come back, I'll continue with more Plan Your Estate Radio. This is your host, estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, broadcasting from San Jose, California, and I'll see you on the other side of the mid-show break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back to the second half of our show today. I'm going to jump right in with... Um, another situation out of San Francisco, California. And uh, this is one of those things where uh, technical compliance with the law um, may mean everything or this person might be able to actually uh, get away with it. But it's going to be a long, hard fight. Now, just to set this one up, there is a section of the probate code, 16061.7, that basically states that when a trust becomes 
irrevocable. And that could actually happen when the uh, owner of the trust becomes legally incapacitated and a successor trustee takes over. It becomes irrevocable at that time because that person can no longer make amendments or changes to their trust because now they're legally unable to do so. But the more common thing is when the trustor or creator of a trust passes away and now the trust becomes irrevocable and some requirements flow from that. It's part of trust administration. One of the things is that a notice has to be sent out to all of the beneficiaries of the trust. Typically, it's accompanied by a copy of the terms of the trust. My practice is to send the entire trust document out to everybody who is a beneficiary. Uh, It's also generally accepted that you should send a copy to everyone who would be the immediate natural heir of the person, such as a uh, disinherited son or daughter. Um, But the general rule is you have to send this notice out and it has to be in a certain size uh, type and it has to have exact language in it that gives notice to those beneficiaries that they only have a certain amount of time to go to court and complain about the trust, uh, challenge the trust, challenge the validity of the trust, challenge the the legal capacity or competency of, of the creator of the trust, all those things. They're given a limited amount of time to challenge. Uh, generally, it's 120 days from the date the notification is sent out or 60 days from the date where a copy of the terms of the trust is mailed or personally delivered in response to a request. Now, I typically send out uh, the trust as well, which means it's 120 days. And the law says that if that notice is sent out after 120 days, a beneficiary or any other party who wants, who was given notice, who wants to contest it or fight it, they can no longer successfully pursue a contest of the trust because they had that time period to complain and do something. If they didn't do anything, then the court's going to say, too late, you're done. Now, in the case of this person out of San Francisco, they just realized that they did not copy and paste the correct verbiage from the probate code into the notice that was sent out, which means that the notice is technically defective. Now, I don't know if they sent uh, sent out a copy of the trust at the same time. If they sent out a copy of the trust at the same time and now one of the trustor's kids are going to contest, that's what it says here, but it's been more than the 120 days, uh, that suggests to me that the trust was sent to this kid. Now it's going to be an issue of Technically, the notice was defective, but it's pretty apparent to me that this child did receive a copy of the trust. And if they waited a long time after the 120 days to now say, I'm contesting this, then the trustee might be able to defend against that 
on the basis that, number one, yes, the notice was defective, but number two, you got a copy of the terms of the trust and you knew that, and and even if it was defective, it said you only have a certain amount of time. And number three, if you waited for several months after the expiration of that notice to finally speak up and do something, the court might very well say that, yes, you still have the legal right or you have the legal right to complain about this and contest, but because you sat on your legal rights, as we say, you sat on your hands and didn't do anything, then it may be the court will say there is a legal doctrine, uh, a defense doctrine that uh, called latches, which basically means you have a legal right, uh, but if you wait too long at, to exercise it, even though technically you, you have the right to exercise it, the court may say, look, you waited too long. Actions were already taken in reliance on you not doing anything. And, uh, and, the, and the, you know, in this case, maybe the trustee has already acted to make distributions and everything. Uh, and now you're complaining about it months later. The court might deny the claim, even though there was a technical error in the notice because uh, it says because the kid did, in fact, get a notice, might have had some missing words, but did did get a copy of the trust. And a reasonable person would look at that and say, I need to act right away. So the court might still find in favor of the trustee. But if this kid goes ahead and files suit, there's going to be a big fight and uh, and the outcome is not certain. Um of course, even filing that, the kid still has to prove that there's grounds to contest the trust. Uh, just because you file and say, I object to the trust, you still have to prove why the trust is objectionable. Uh, so there's a lot of things ahead for this particular trust and this particular trustee. And uh, it, it may be that they'll be able to settle something. But in the meantime, there's no clear answer whether or not that contest of the trust would be successful. Okay, out of Altadena, California. I've heard it's a nice city. I've driven by it a few times on my travels in Southern California. This person said, I've been separated from my husband since 2017. So let's see, that's five years. Divorce has not been finalized. If I receive an inheritance from my family... Will it be considered community property in California? Answer, absolutely not. Even if you were still married and living with each other, an inheritance is separate property by definition only if you either intentionally or inadvertently mix it into the marriage. For example, putting it into joint accounts with your spouse, uh, things like that. It remains separate property. It's not community property. I would tell this person, if you're going to get an inheritance, make sure you take it and maintain it entirely in your name. Maybe even set up a trust to own that inheritance that's just in your name and explicitly says it's not going to your husband whom you're divorcing. And you should be in pretty good shape right there if you do that. Okay, out of Los Angeles, California, and this is a tough one, too. 
trustor is mentally competent to make decisions, and she wants to appoint a secondary trustee as well as make some modifications to the interests of a particular beneficiary of her trust. Okay, can the original trustee oppose the trustor from decision-making because the trustee just became the conservator of the person and estate of the trustor due to the trustor's condi- uh, medical condition, requiring 24-hour supervision at a skilled nursing facility? Well, strictly speaking, if someone has been appointed as conservator of the person and estate, that means a court has found that the person is not mentally competent to make decisions on their own. And if that's the case, they really do not have the legal ability to make changes to their trust. Now, if the um, if the conservatorship of the person can be lifted, then the person, um, you know, is in fact competent, they would be able to make those changes. But as long as they are conserved by the court, and that is actually the legal terminology that's used, that would mean that they really can't make changes. Uh, The only one who could possibly make changes is the conservator by petitioning the court Uh, to make those changes and indicate to the court why it's a good idea to make those changes. Um, It sounds like uh, I'm trying to figure out why the trustee of the trust applied for a conservatorship if there was already a trust. Um, That seems kind of unusual unless there were extensive assets not in the trust or there was no health care power of attorney or any kind of nomination of conservator made by the person. Uh, We're trying to avoid conservatorship by doing estate planning, not end up with a conservatorship, even though there's clearly been some estate planning done. So that's what's kind of unclear to me there. Here's a quick one out of Rancho Cucamonga. It says, my brother was homeless, died intestate in California. Our deceased mother left us real property in Mexico the Mexican will states were equal owners. Does his only surviving daughter or executor of the will file probate and where? California or Mexico? Well, Mexico, um, Mexico for the mother's estate. California only if the brother who died homeless and intestate actually had sufficient assets. If he died homeless, chances are he really didn't. So there's probably not going to be a probate here in California. So we're coming up on the third break of the show today. I'll continue after the break and close out the show. This is Bob Bergman. Now back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back to the final segment of our show today. Continuing on with questions and comments from around the state of California. Here's a question out of Newport Beach, California. Person says, I'm a beneficiary to a trust my father set up. The trust has real property used for rental income. The trustee, my brother, is also a beneficiary. The trust language says specifically, the trustee shall pay to or apply for the benefit of John and Joe, 
all of the net income from his share of the trust estate during the existence of the trust, payable monthly or in other convenient installments, but not less often than quarterly. One of the rental properties was sold a few years ago, and the monies have been used to better the property, and the balance is in a trust savings account and used as needed for expenses. The trustee has decided not to distribute the net income from the rentals and is intending on using the net income for other trust investments. Question, can the trustee do that? My response is, probably not. Um, If it specifically mandates that the net income uh, is to be distributed out, then it's supposed to be distributed out. And the only way the trustee could retain it and use it for other investments, which is not, um, that's not considered using it for something uh, that is necessary. Um, In other words, to maintain a property, to pay taxes, insurance, things like that. But wanting to take the money and invest other ways, it doesn't sound like the trustee has the authority to do that. And um, this person probably needs to get legal assistance to make a demand that the trustee comply with the terms of the trust. And if that is not successful and the trustee refuses, unfortunately, the person may have to actually go to court to compel the trustee to follow the terms of the trust or maybe even remove the trustee uh, and replace the trustee with a trustee who will actually follow what the trust says. Yeah. Not a great situation. Question out of Riverside, California. What are the responsibilities for my dad when his wife of 32 years is still of sound mind and body? Or what are the responsibilities of me to my dad when his wife of 32 years is still of sound mind and body? Okay, so this is dad and stepmom. My stepmom and my dad have separate wills and estates, but also have joint accounts as well that they use. My dad retired right after they got married, and they've been living off my dad's retirement for 32 years. My stepmom wants to place my dad in a memory care facility, which I totally agree with, but she wants the money to be paid out of my dad's estate alone, like she has no financial responsibility for his care. She does not even want to use his retirement and Social Security money towards his care. I told her this does not sound right and that the 5000 he brings in per month should go towards his care and she is still responsible for his care financially by being his wife the last 32 years and living off his money alone. She has Social Security and multiple sources of income through her investments, which she has not had to touch for 32 years. She's worth way more than my dad because of that. She also tried to tell me I was responsible for his medical decisions, and then again I told her she was his primary decision maker, and I was to back her up in case she could not make decisions any longer. Well, it sounds like this wife of 32 years really doesn't give a rat's patoot for her husband who has to go under care facility. She has the primary legal responsibility for caring for her husband. 
even if they have separate estates. That comes with being married. Um, and I think the child is right here. Um, any money coming in for the father should be going to his care. And the wife should also be providing for his care. It shouldn't exclusively come out of his assets. And I don't know, maybe this will prompt the wife to now divorce him after 32 years so she doesn't have to have any financial responsibility to uh, provide and care for her husband. Uh, Unfortunately, this kind of stuff happens all the time. And uh, it's really a shame that that's what this family is faced with. Okay, in a formal fiduciary relationship, the trustee is governed by the written trust agreement and anything else? Well, yes, the written trust agreement tells the fiduciary what their powers and duties and responsibilities are. But the trust law of the state where the trust is being handled may add additional responsibilities And the trustee is also governed by the trust law. Some aspects of the trust law can be modified by the trust. Others are statutory and cannot be modified by the trustee or ignored at the trustee's peril. So that's the short answer for that. Well, we're coming up at the end of our show today. Next week, come back on Friday. There will be more Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, Attorney Bob Bergman. I'm heading off into a fun and hopefully productive weekend. I hope you do too, and I hope you're having a great day and you have a great weekend. The weather looks like it should be pretty nice. So until next Friday, this is attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio, and you have a great time this weekend. Goodbye. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.